Financial technology has changed significantly in the last decade, and companies both new and old are adapting to that change. Newer companies like TransferWise and Stripe are often called fintech companies, short for financial technology. Established companies like banks may not refer to themselves as fintech companies, but the way that they do business is changing due to technological advances like blockchain. Ed Donner is the CEO of Untapped a hiring platform for fintech companies, and he joins the show to talk about the fundamental changes that are causing so many new fintech companies to be created. Before starting Untapped, Ed worked at J.P. Morgan Chase, where he spent much of his time leading engineers and hiring engineers, which makes him well-equipped to build a platform for hiring software engineers into fintech companies, driven by machine intelligence, which he talks about in this interview about Untapped and fintech. Before we get to this episode, some quick announcements. The Software Engineering Daily community has started working on a project called Software Daily. We are building an open source news and information site about software, thanks to Jeff Tribble, who started the project. If you're a web developer working on React.js or Flux architecture applications or Node.js, you can check out the Software Daily repo, which you can find by going to softwaredaily.com. SoftwareEngineeringDaily.com has some interesting links as well. If you want to contribute to Software Engineering Daily, you can become a host. You can find out how to contribute to the outlines that I prepare for these shows. You can join the Slack channel, or you can follow my Twitter account. You can send me an email. You can sign up for the Software Engineering Daily newsletter. There are plenty of things to find on the SoftwareEngineeringDaily.com website. And again, if you're interested in the Software Daily, the news and information site that we're building, you can go to SoftwareDaily.com. Ed Donner is the CEO of Untapped, a hiring platform for fintech companies. Ed, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you, Jeff. I'm, I'm delighted to be here. Absolutely. So we're going to be talking about hiring and fintech, and let's start out with the latter. What is meant by that term fintech? We hear it a lot. Uh, I think it means a lot of things, but how do you define it? You're exactly right. It's one of these terms that means many different things to different people. Uh, Historically, people used to use fintech to mean any technology that was improving the, the efficiency of financial services. But then in the last five years, it's really become the buzzword that's referring to all of the new wave of disruption that's that's kind of transforming finance, particularly in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis. Um, but then more recently, people are really taking the fintech term and using it pretty broadly. So now you hear of, of larger finance companies that are talking about uh, their fintech departments where they are where they're really embracing innovation and bringing this kind of of innovative thinking into their companies as well. Okay. Okay, so you contrasted fintech with the financial tech technology companies of the past. Is that to say that those two things are mutually exclusive are are these uh, two categories of financial technology companies doing completely different things today? Well, I think we've seen a bit of both, actually. I think we've seen some technology companies that have demonstrated a a willingness to adapt and change and embrace new ways of doing things. 
And we've seen some that for various reasons are, are continuing to, to progress um, the, the way that they were before. Um, many of the of the people that, that we've been working with recently ourselves are, are some of the companies that, that have really decided they want to embrace the new technology and, and they want to, uh, to, to really do things differently. How are those companies, um, I mean, it's, it almost sounds, it sounds kind of like the innovator's dilemma because you have these banks or other financial institutions that have these profit sources that in some ways are dragging them, uh, are clawing them back into the past because many of these revenue sources are things that consumers associate with a bad user experience or a lack of trust. Um, but that's simply how how banking kind of worked for a long period of time. I, I mean, to, to what extent do you feel that's true? Well, I think it's becoming less of an extent, particularly because uh, regulators are becoming increasingly willing to, to, to be more flexible, um, and particularly because consumers are starting to expect different things from their banks. So I think we are seeing this, this change. Um, in some cases, it's, it's, uh, uh, it, it, it's, it's happening very fast. A, a couple of weeks ago, uh, you had uh, uh, TransferWise, you had uh, Harsh Singer on uh, and heard a lot about the kind of rapid disruption going on with, with uh, uh, cross-border uh, money transfers. And in, in some cases with, with the high street retail uh, uh, banks, it's, it's happening more slowly. So to different extents in, in, in different parts of the market, but driven by uh, consumer appetite, driven by changing regulations and, and coming out of uh, the... Um, the, in the wake of the financial crisis. Yeah, that, that episode with Harsh was interesting. You know, one of the things that he said was, I think you just mentioned it, was that the the app, the cons- change in consumer appetite, much of that is due to the loss of trust in the traditional finan- uh, financial system due to the, the events of 2008. Um and, and but another another thing about TransferWise that I find interesting is like the the innovation of TransferWise is not not exactly something that could not have been done uh, you know I don't know five ten fifteen years ago or it, it, you know this could have been occurring sooner. So how much of the changes to that are that are emerging with new fintech companies how much of these are driven by fundamental technological changes and how much of them are just do are due to these changing consumer appetites and they're things that we could do a lot like 10 or 15 years ago I, I do think a lot of it is the consumer appetite i think a lot of the technology has been around i will say though that it's much more accessible now the the barrier to entry is much lower to to reusing uh, open source platforms to, to spinning something up on an Amazon EC2 instance. So it's become much easier to test out different business theories and, and, and get things up and running. Um, and we heard some of, of, uh, of how the, uh, uh, the, the co-founder of, of TransferWise got, got started. Uh, so much more accessible combined with consumer appetite has led to this wave of innovation um, and this, this, a very quick time to market for uh, disruptive solutions in fintech. Hmm. You were working in the traditional financial sector for many years. 
Uh, you eventually were an engineering director at, I think, J.P. Morgan Chase. And you have remarked that the biggest challenge that you had was in hiring. Why was it so challenging to hire technologists in the financial technology sector? I'd start by saying, Jeff, that that is understatement of the year. It was it was uh, uh, impossibly frustrating. Uh, yeah, I, I had uh, uh, about an eighteen year career, uh, mostly at J.P. Morgan, also at, at a startup, and and uh, for a bit at, at IBM. Uh, in towards the end of my time at J.P. Morgan, uh, running a global tech team. I had to hire 30 or 40 Python engineers in the space of a couple of months, and I just couldn't <laughs> do it. Yeah, that's, that's a lot. Uh, and uh, it, it was just impossible. It was so painful. I, I, I had an, an army of, of recruiters, of headhunters, and I, I worked with a ton of different tech tools out there. Um, and I was still bringing in perhaps one or two engineers uh, a, a week. Um, and uh, I spoke with, with the software engineers as well and sort of sat down with them and said, tell me about your experience. And it was a kind of shock to discover that they are also incredibly frustrated. And I imagine this, this will resonate with, with people who are, who are listening. Uh, many of the people I spoke with were getting called two or three times a day, every day, by, by headhunters. If they had put their resumes on a job board, then they were getting flooded with low-quality matches getting in mails uh, uh, on, a, on a daily basis. Um, and yet, you know, a, a large number of them are, are not engaged, not satisfied in their current jobs at the moment. So, for example, one of the questions we ask now, all the engineers that, that come to our site is, tell us how, how happy you are with your current job on a scale of one to ten. And the percentage of people that say that they are seven or better, seven out of ten or better in their in their careers right now, is only twenty three percent. That's shocking. That is shocking. So so you have this this perfect storm of frustrated hiring managers, somewhat disappointed and and frustrated software engineers, and sitting in the middle, uh, you have uh, the recruitment business and and recruiting tools. And uh, we estimate that about uh, $6 billion is spent every year globally on recruitment in, in technology. Um, so clearly something badly broken and, and very frustrating to be there. So I want to go into all of that in more depth, but can you tell me real quick why you had to hire 30 or 40 Python engineers in a month? Because that sounds like a really strange directive to have. Sure, sure. So, so I was uh, running a team in an area called risk technology. Um, and in, again, in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis, risk is an area that's, that's got, a, of course, a lot of focus. And it was in, extremely important to, to keep expanding and improving uh, the models and the, the engines that we use for managing risk. Um, and there was a, an imperative to um, consolidate and build a new Python-based uh, risk engine. It was a Monte Carlo simulation engine that could um, better and, and uh, more effectively uh, capture the firm's counterparty credit risk. So it was a mission-critical project, um, and it was something that just had to get done quickly. Wow. This is – sorry, this, is, this was like post-crisis, post-2008 crisis? Yes. 
Wow. So this, this was in, in uh, 2011 to 2012. I did always wonder what it looked like from the inside trying to put out those fires. And I guess you sort of just answered my question. Sure. Tried to put out the fires by throwing some, some pythons on them. Um, <laughs> well, JP Morgan's generally considered to have some of the best of breed infrastructure, particularly in, in the area of risk technology. Um, and uh, I think this was just about the, the continuing trend of investing in this in this area of technology. Um, and uh, we were using some of the uh, um, most uh, uh, pioneering technology at, at the time to really build best of breed systems. But of course, a, a great sense of urgency to do it right and do it quickly. Well, and you know, the, the, the types of technology, like I worked briefly at a, at a trading company for about five months and the technology stack was incredibly interesting. And that is one thing I will, I will say about, about the fintech sector uh, particularly the developed side of the the well developed uh, fintech companies like trading firms or even I'm sure a place like J P Morgan that has all these things going on is that the technology stack is very very big very interesting and it's 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 it's, it's very very different from you know the traditional tech sector so I could see somebody in the traditional tech sector saying. Oh, you know, I'm somewhat interested in going into fintech because it'll be slightly different. The product development cycle is different. The challenges are different. Um, but what about the hiring aspects of fintech is different than the traditional tech sector, the, the traditional tech companies like a Google or a Facebook or maybe a, a small startup? So I would say it's there's nothing fundamentally different about hiring into fintech for our business model we we wanted to follow the philosophy of start small and dream big uh, which meant that we wanted to start with a nice specialized marketplace where we could solve the problem really well um, fintech has has enormous demand for engineers and and yeah fintech has something of an image problem in in some cases whilst it 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 is extremely exciting there is also some baggage from the 2008 financial crisis so there are certainly um there's certainly a a, a sense out there that uh interesting problems are solved at at google and, and amazon and facebook but interesting problems are not being solved in fintech so there's an angle that that, that says that we can we can help with that brand um, problem, and we can help tell the story about the interesting problems that are being solved in fintech. Um, and there's also just the the angle that we want to be focused and specialized, and and really help fintech uh, to to hire and fill its insatiable need for for uh, technologists. I I will tell you that the the demand for software engineers in fintech is is off the charts. Uh, it's uh, we we did some estimating on this, and 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 we reckon that that about a thousand engineers get hired every day globally in fintech and, and financial services tech. It's a thousand a day. So enormous market. Uh, so a, a, a good starting point for us. Okay. And with that said, like for people who aren't, don't exactly know what you're talking about yet, why don't you tell us what Untapped is, what you're working on today? Sure, sure. Good point. 
So Untapped is a platform where software engineers can go to find out about their future and then get matched precisely to their next role. Uh, and it's it's focused on on fintech for now with plans to, to scale to other verticals of the industry in the future. Uh, and behind the scenes, it's very much driven off machine intelligence. So it uses uh, machine intelligent models to make the match. Mm. What do you mean by machine intelligence? What are the ways in which the platform uses machine intelligence? That's a, that's a great question. Let me just start quickly by explaining the term because I know these terms are used in, in different ways. So machine intelligence, I would say, is just another term for artificial intelligence, AI, um, the, the, you know, the study of machines that can think, um, machines uh, that, that are uh, exhibiting learning and problem solving. In particular, we, we take most advantage of machine learning um, at the subfield of machine intelligence. Um, and here's, here's the, the nice way to think about machine learning. Normally, when you're, when you're programming, you're telling a machine what to do with a series of instructions, and it's producing some output. In the case of machine learning, it's the other way around. You're giving the machine some output, and it goes and figures out what to do. So in the case of untapped, we can give the machine uh, output in the form of the candidates who've been invited to interview at different companies, and we can let the machine figure out how best to match people with the, the companies where they will be most successful. So it's a supervised learning process where the objective function is getting somebody hired and your your priors, uh, your prior examples of um, that objective function being achieved or not being achieved is the resume data, maybe some other data you have on the candidate and their interactions on untapped, and then the final yes or no as to whether they got hired for a given position. Yeah, actually, we use for our objective function just whether they get the interview. So we are very okay. optimized on lining people up to make sure that everyone that, that we introduce has the best possible chance of being invited to interview. They're interested, and it's a role that they'll be interviewed for. Um, that's the part of the process where we have the most control. Beyond that point, there's there's many other factors in play. Um, so that's that's where we optimize. And yes, our, our labels are whether or not they're they're invited for interview. And yes, you're right. We use we use um, a, a, a bunch of different features as the uh, inputs to the training algorithm, and and those features include structured and unstructured data on the candidate. It includes data from the marketplace itself. Um, and it includes data related to the, both the candidate and the role that they're applying to as well. So a bunch of different features that we engineer as inputs to that machine learning algorithm. Can you talk about some of the inputs that have been better predictors and maybe ones that have been surprisingly worse predictors? Yes, yes. Great question. Great question. So the areas that, that we have found most powerful has been our way of um, really understanding the unstructured data associated with the engineer. So we use natural language processing techniques to look at the engineer's profile, look at the information they've told us about themselves, and try and really understand the nuances of, of what kind of, of engineer is this. So 
to give a concrete example, supposing that the word Python appears in some work experience for, for a particular engineer, that could mean a bunch of different things. It could mean that they're a full stack developer working on a, a web app using Python and Django. It could mean that they're a DevOps engineer who uses Perl and Python and, and a bunch of different scripting languages and DevOps activities. Or it could mean that they're a data scientist who builds models in R and then ports them to Python using NumPy and SciPy and Scikit-Learn. Three very different kinds of roles, all just with the word Python. So we use these techniques that, that look at the word Python contextually in terms of other related words that are close by. Um, and we can distinguish between those, those different nuances. And, and we use that as an input into the model. And, and that, that feature is one of our strongest predictors. And this is something that, that online job boards obviously struggle with today. They tend to be very keyword driven. Um, and I'd say even human recruiters have a hard time with this, unless they're very technical. This is, this is a, a nuance that's hard to understand. And, and we, we see ourselves doing better than both. So in terms of a, of a feature that performed worse than expected, this was a surprising one. Uh, so I, I mentioned we look at some features that are related to both the candidate and the job. So one thing that came to mind is we look at the distance between the two. So, you know, if, if uh, the, the role is in New York, but the, uh, uh, the engineer is in Houston, Texas, then, then that would, would uh, we thought, would indicate that the manager might be slightly less willing to interview them than if they are around the corner because there's additional costs to bringing them in face-to-face -face, and there's going to be some relocation discussions. So we did work to, to build all of this data. We fed it in. It turned out to really not have any signal. Um, and whilst that was, that was bad news for us, I think it's good news in the, in the grander scheme of things because it shows that hiring managers are actually, uh, it seems, equally willing to talk to people um, who are located remotely um, if they are a good match in terms of their skills. I could also imagine that distance thing having sort of a barbell effect where if the candidate is 40 minutes away, then it's maybe a negative signal because you, then the candidate would have a 40-minute commute. And if they're very far away, then it's fine because they're going to have to relocate so they can relocate close to the job. Um, and then maybe if they're in Uzbekistan and they're uh, you know applying for a job in New York, then it might again be a negative signal. So with with that said, like I mean, you you did the but but you would that's something you would only find if you did like really in depth research into that particular uh, scenario. So with that said, it's like it's it's kind of interesting because this that's the notion of you know maybe you train your model uh, in in you train your model with particular data and you're not you know if you don't examine the data in a particular light, then maybe the model doesn't. Um, gain all the lessons that it could from a particular uh, series of examples. Um, I mean, maybe you could talk a little bit more about how you update your models and how you measure the effectiveness of those models. Yes, it's a great question. And, and you're absolutely right. Looking for things like barbells, 
bucketing into different buckets um, and the like is uh, is all part of the process. And we have uh, two data scientists who, who live and breathe this and, and uh, are constantly experimenting with new features. But yeah, there's really two parts of the process. There's the feature engineering step where you, you come up with new hypotheses like a barbell, like, like, like a, um, a binary a predictor. Um, and uh, then there's the modeling stage, which is where you put this into a model and you try and see what has signal and what doesn't. Um, for our models, we use uh, um, what's called a, a multi-stage model, which, which means that we have um, a model that we train generically across all the jobs in our platform. And then we take that model and we train it again specifically for each job in turn to get a, a, a more um, customized version of the model. And, and uh, for those familiar with this, we use a, a combination of frequentist and Bayesian statistics um, to get this multi-stage model. And what comes out of it is a ton of different numbers. And we are all a bunch of data junkies, so we, we spend far too much time looking, looking at these numbers. But there's one in particular above all that we really focus on. Um, and it's very simple, and it's called the interview rate. And it is the percentage of job applications um, that are made that get invited to interview. Uh, and when we, we started out with the platform, that metric was at about 20%. Um, which, which means uh, that, that managers were asking to interview about one in five of the people that, that, that we put in front of them. Midway through last year, we got to 30%. Uh, and uh, right now, we have reached about 40%. And our target for this year is to get to 50%. That, that would be Nirvana. That means that every other job application is getting invited to interview. And that, that's the kind of key metric that, that, we, uh, that we look at. Are there scenarios where the candidate is browsing jobs on actually you know what we should first we should walk through the the candidate experience so if I'm a candidate that wants to go through the hiring process on untapped what is my end-to-end -end experience yeah so we've built what we think is a very unique experience which is very much a private confidential high value experience for engineers. The kind of mantra is that no one sees your information without your permission. So you sign up for Untapped in confidence. You tell us how happy you are in your role on a scale of one to 10 <laughs> that I mentioned earlier. Uh, and you tell us what matters most to you in your role. You can optionally connect with your LinkedIn profile. You can upload a traditional resume if you want, which we'll pause. You can add in extra details on your resume. You can, you can connect with things like uh, code in GitHub or Stack Overflow if you wish. Um, and the next step is that you then get matched precisely to a number of roles um, that, that we believe, the algorithm believes, uh, are going to interest you. You can then look at those roles uh, and watch videos from the hiring manager at each of those companies introducing themselves talking about the kinds of problems they solve uh, and explaining why, uh, why this might be a great opportunity for you to consider. Uh, if you're interested, you then press a button to say, I'm interested, and only then your profile would be sent to that manager for them to consider. Uh, they would then get to look at, at, at your profile and 
they can then press a button if if they think it's also a match, and at that point, the two sides are directly connected. So I have somewhat of an unconventional resume. There are lots of weird projects and things on there. How much flexibility do I have over what information? Because like I can imagine, you know, I I want some of these weird things to appear on my resume um, because they might stand out to certain hiring people. But also, there can they could be negative flags to some people. And also, if you give too people too much control over the resume or the profile that they could build on the site, then you might end up with a lack of standardization. You might end up with people who represent the same thing in two different ways, which makes it harder for you to build accurate models. So how do you give people the right amount of freedom over how they represent themselves on the platform? We've thought pretty carefully about this. So we do have a standardized framework. Your resume appears in a standard way, consistent, and managers see every resume with a consistent formatting. But within each section, we've maintained this high level of flexibility about the structure, about capturing uh, where you've worked, the courses you've taken, that you can share any links um, and, and add sections where you can just say things interesting about yourself. So we've, we, we're striving to get the best of both worlds, consistent framework, but um, a lot of freedom. And then we take advantage of our natural language processing techniques to try and, and derive signals from it um, without just looking for keywords and, and oversimplifying the space. Now, an example, one thing that we, we also support is that engineers can record videos themselves to introduce themselves to the hiring manager. Not something that runs through our algorithm at the moment, but it allows them to, to have like an extra leg up in the process. Uh, no surprise, we found that people are not the most willing to record videos to introduce themselves. Uh, I think that's something that will change in, in the coming years. Certainly, millennials seem much more willing to record videos. Uh, but uh, that's, that's functionality that's there as well that, that, that could be useful too, particularly if you have a, a sort of non-conventional resume. Yeah, maybe you can be the Snapchat of hiring. <laughs> right. Um, so... What, do you ever need a human in the loop in this job matching process? Well, that's a great question. So I know this is a hotly debated topic um, and uh, uh, a very important one. Uh, and and I guess uh, an answer that would, that would be a bit glib would be to say that, that I absolutely believe you need to have a human in the loop. And I would say you need to have two humans in the loop, and they are the, the candidate and the hiring manager. Uh, the, the, the question is whether you need the third human in the loop, um, the, the, uh, the, the broker, the, 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 the headhunter, or, or, uh, or, or the talent advocate, or, or, or whatever they're called. For, I, I think that, that the goal should be to get two well-matched, engaged people in a room together as quickly as possible and make sure that nothing gets lost in translation and optimize the process for that outcome. And that doesn't mean that you have zero humans in the middle, uh, just, just as Expedia has, has travel agents standing by if, if, if you need to call. But in that kind of continuum of, of, of human-computer interaction, definitely uh, uh, my view is more on the, on the computer end. This is, this is a process that, that, that can be 
uh, that can be largely automated and the people part of it as much as possible should be between the actual engineer and their future boss. What are the advantages and disadvantages that the platform enjoys from not having a human in the loop? Yeah, so the main benefit that we see to not having the human in the loop is that it just allows us to scale so quickly and offer so much more liquidity on both sides of the market. So we can very quickly ramp up and provide the most possible opportunities to engineers um, that, that we can. The reason for our name untapped uh, is that we, we really believe in sort of tapping into new pools of talent um, and that we can, we can spread out broadly and attract people that aren't on recruiters' uh, uh, Rolodexes um, from, from, from all over the U.S. And, 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 and beyond and have them come in and be matched up very quickly. So it's a scalable, automated process that adds liquidity to the market. And the other advantage is that, that nothing gets lost in translation. You don't have someone in the middle who's trying to explain um, why Python is needed in this role and is potentially uh, not familiar with the differences of Python as a scripting language versus Python being used for uh, a Django app. So you, you uh, are connecting the, the two sides that need to speak um, as quickly as possible. Mm. And you're also sort of uh, allowing allowing a, a platform to think uh, untraditionally uh, about hiring. You're not sort of fixed into, into the, the, the sets of rules that, that you might have with, 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 um, with a particular uh, uh, human in the middle. Okay, Probably so. the, the, the downside, um, the, the benefit of the human in the middle um, might come uh, later in the process when it comes to things like uh, negotiating compensation um, parts that, that, that then become much more um, where, where, where you, you very much might need to have separate conversations. But increasingly, we're actually seeing that this is something where hiring managers would prefer to take control of this directly. Um, and when you have a human in the middle who's being paid a percentage of the, uh, the, the outcome, there's, there's some um, mixed... Uh, um, there, there's, there's potentially that they, they may be pulled in different directions, and and so we, by by removing that broker in the middle, we're sort of taking again that 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 bias out, and we're just leaving that to a direct conversation between the hiring manager and the engineer. The salary negotiation thing, I think, is interesting, and I think there are conditions where the human in the loop is helpful, but it's that's often it's it's to say that the engineer is not um taking taking the reins and doing the negotiation we, we actually have an episode that by the time that this episode airs will have aired about my friend Hasib who is a former poker player turned uh engineer and you know he negotiated this ridiculous salary from I mean <laughs> ridiculous in a good way from from uh, Airbnb nice. uh and and the the main lesson of that episode was that software engineers have a lot to learn about salary negotiation 
and they're not going to learn it any sooner by having their hand held. Um, and you know, is, who, who's to say that the you know the talent ad, or whoever is sitting in between the the um, the candidate and the hiring manager is going to be better at negotiation than simply the candidate. Um, in reality, that is going to be the case most of the time, but yeah. the software but engineer it, can certainly change that. Again, they have mixed motivations because the that's the, right. Uh, no, I don't. I don't want to uh, uh, necessarily be be completely dismissive of that person in the middle, but the person in the middle is also motivated to close the deal as quickly as possible. Of course, which may or may not be in the best interests of the engineer. So it's just a question of whether everyone's motivations are aligned. And the way we can be absolutely sure that they're aligned is if we let the conversation happen directly between the two people um, that, are, that are involved in, in the deal. Mm-hmm. And I would say that even, even in, a, in, a, in a, a platform like Untapped, there still would be uh, you know, people behind the scenes available to help if that's needed. Um, again, just, just like you would see at, at, an, at an Expedia. Um, but it's just as much as possible being left as direct conversations. Often also with larger companies, of course, you have internal HR teams, and we very much see them as being part of the, the humans in the loop. Internal HR makes complete sense to be involved, um, and internal HR would also be involved in, in the sort of uh, compensation discussions and tend to, 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 to try to take a somewhat impartial stance to, to, to help get the engineer on board. So what does Untapped get from being the middleman or the, the marketplace arbitrageur? So we charge a subscription fee to our clients. Uh, our view is that the, um, the, the pay-per-hire model, as I say, is, is something which, um, which, which sort of uh, 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 may, may not align motivations in the best way. We would like to say hiring, using our platform to hire is, is a fantastic thing. Um, so we charge a um, monthly or annual subscription to our clients and say, please use us as much as you can. And we like to give the analogy of the gym membership model. When you, when you sign up for the gym and you pay your, your dues, you then feel like, I better use the gym. I'm paying for it. I'm going to use it. I want to use it. Uh, and it's a good thing. If uh, you had to pay a fee every time you went to the gym uh, or, or every time you saw improvement, uh, that, that, would, that would be strange. Uh, and you probably wouldn't go to the gym as much. So that's the model we use. We're, we're trying to bring as much liquidity to this market as possible. We want people to, 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 uh, to show their interest in companies. We want companies to be interviewing and, and ultimately hiring. Um, and we think that the uh, SaaS subscription rate is the way to go. Mm. In the early days, we were on a, on a pay-per-hire basis, so we still have some clients that are on that, on that platform too, but we're increasingly moving everyone to a, a, a subscription model. Okay. You know, there was when I worked in the, the finance industry um, briefly, I got the sense that these financial systems are so interwoven. It's... Um, it's almost it's like scary to some extent when like when the Nasdaq freezes up and it uh, it causes ripple effects uh, throughout the whole industry. And when we you know if we were thinking about so- from a software architecture standpoint, we would be like, wow, these abstractions are are tightly coupled. Do you think that the financial system 
could could stand to be less less coupled, or do you think that the tight coupling is useful? Yeah, that's that's an interesting one. I think that probably the greatest problem um, related to the coupling is the proliferation of legacy systems that you'll see across the uh, um, the, the the financial system. Uh, Technology that's that's badly outdated with with very uh, uh, you know um, legacy technology uh, uh, designs um, with files being FTP'd with uh, um, you know pretty uh, uh, frightening uh, um, uh, frighteningly old code that that's sitting there. Uh, and the trouble is that some of this is really expensive to come in and replace, and it's it's uh, it's a uh, uh, very difficult to do large upgrades to some of these uh, these these legacy environments and platforms and feeds, um, and in many cases, uh, it's something where we will need to be on the on the offense rather than the defense. We you know right now in many cases uh, bugs are sort of getting fixed in legacy code, and and we need to really bite the bullet and and uh, build new systems. And in some ways, that's that's again jumping back to to fintech. That's where perhaps the the fintech startup movement has an opportunity to come in and replace some of this technology with with something completely new. Uh, the uh, you know the the emergence of, of 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 blockchain technology is something that that might be able to to uh, to, to produce uh, more effective ways to to uh, to to integrate and maintain information. Uh, the the um, emergence of, of uh, companies like TransferWise as as more effective ways to to, to make cross border payments. Uh, the fact that that uh, um, mobile phones are in, in everyone's hands. There's there's a lot of opportunity for us to sort of approach everything differently um, and and replace the legacy technology with something completely new. Blockchain technology. So. Who is using blockchains in production, or or maybe who for whoever is using blockchains in production? How are they using it? I think that right now it's still a lot of hype. I think that uh, I know that within many of the big banks there are um, there are uh, lab environments where they are experimenting with blockchain solutions for many different purposes. Uh, we, I've just been very lucky to have come out of an intensive uh, three-month uh, program uh, called the FinTech Innovation Lab, um, which is uh, co-sponsored by Accenture and by a, a, a fund called the, the Partnership Fund of New York. Uh, and, and we worked with, with a couple of, of blockchain companies there, uh, one called AlphaPoint and one called Cambridge Blockchain, both looking to, to bring different kinds of, of uh, blockchain-related solutions into, into financial services, um, Cambridge blockchain, for example, for, for, for identity management. So, so people, it, it, it's still, um, something of a promise, but people are looking, um, for the opportunities to, 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 to use this as a way to move people off legacy technology and into, um, into, uh, uh, new solutions. I don't know how much you've looked into these technologies in detail, but how do you feel that the, at least the ethos of the Bitcoin community and the Ethereum community compare to each other? Uh, 
so I, I listened to your recent podcast on this actually. Um, and you know, the, 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 that, that, those are the experts on the topic. Um, I certainly think that, uh, Ethereum is, is the, uh, there's, there's a, a ton of excitement, um, and still, still trying to, uh, really understand the, the right, the, the, the best applications for, for how that will be used. So how, you know, you were in New York, uh, there was, I think a year or two ago, there was so much talk about this New York versus Silicon Valley technologies, uh, te- technology companies in, in terms of ethos and um, how the companies operate, how the employees are. How do you feel that software engineering at New York companies differs from Silicon Valley companies? Very interesting. Um, well, uh, I'll probably give a, a hopelessly generalized answer, uh, and I'm sure there's lots of counter examples. But it does seem there is there is something of a different culture between the the startup communities and in, in uh, the Bay Area and in, in New York. Um, I would. Uh, there are some obvious things. Uh, New York, of course, is is more of a financial center, so the the uh, uh, fintech specialization seems to be stronger on on the East Coast than the West Coast. Um, I have the sense that the West Coast has more of a, a, of an ecosystem, more I, I'd almost call it incestuous, but there's certainly uh, certainly a very close knit community on the West Coast where everyone seems to know everyone uh, and. Um, there's there's uh, there's there's a uh, uh, very um, very cohesive community with a lot of networking between them. I my sense is that in New York we're more spread out. We have different accelerator programs. We have different meetups, but they tend to be less cohesive and less coordinated. Um, and perhaps that's because New York is is still still a few years away from maturing to the extent that that uh, that, that Silicon Valley and, and, and across the Bay Area has matured. Um, and then generally, I would say, and, and again, this this is probably a cliche, but in the West Coast, there tends to be the the greatest uh, interest in looking at businesses that are creating new markets that are that are discovering uh, a new concept a new market that has never been thought of before uh, I, I think that on the east coast the the sense seems to be that, that there's more interest in businesses that solve real concrete business problems that are a huge pain point that it resonates with lots of people so I tend to see that difference in the kinds of businesses that, that we hear about uh, on both sides. And then, you know, other than that, I think that the demand for, for engineers is, uh, uh, whilst it's, it's, um, it's insatiable everywhere, it, it feels like the, the squeeze is even worse on the West Coast. Uh, and the, the cost of living has recently soared higher on the, on the West Coast. So... For various reasons, I would certainly say uh, uh, that New York has become and, and keeps becoming uh, a, uh, a really exciting place to uh, uh, to come and, and be an engineer and be part of the thriving startup community. And perhaps it's it's a few years behind where where uh, where the valley got to, and perhaps that's a good thing. I'd also say, though, uh, Jeff, that that um, 
there's a lot of benefit to being part of the smaller tech communities that that are in in other cities as well. Uh, I obviously Austin has has a, has an exploding tech scene. Um, I gather Houston uh, has a tech scene too, uh, and and uh, across many cities that that there are. Uh, um, there are ecosystems starting up. There are there are WeWorks. There are uh, um, new startups coming together, and there are benefits to being a part of those smaller communities as well. So I don't think engineers should feel that they have to come to New York uh, or go to uh, to the West Coast to be part of the startup scene. Yeah, I wonder if I mean I don't know much about the Houston tech scene, but I wonder if it's if it's like oil tech like you know new technology companies involved in oil or that wouldn't surprise me um hmm. well okay yeah so there's certainly there's, there's there is a you know obviously that the energy companies in houston uh jp morgan is in houston some of my team was uh, based in houston as well uh but um there's also colleges like like rice university there's there's you know there's there's a lot of uh, uh engineering focus there and so there's people coming out who who have ideas and and who want to build businesses uh and uh, so there's there's a lot of a lot of uh, passion there as well so how do you see hiring changing over the next 5 to 10 years well, I would say, Jeff, that, that I am an optimist. Uh, hiring hasn't changed that much in the last five to 10 years, but I believe that we are at a point of inflection. And I think we're going to look back on this time like we look back on the era before Amazon or Expedia or Zillow um, and so on. I, I would say that hiring is going to be unrecognizable five years from now. Uh, it's actually going to be fun. Uh, engineers are going to be matched better with their jobs and they're going to be happier in their work. And managers are actually going to enjoy building kind of high-performance teams that they want. Mm. Okay. Well, so to conclude, you spend a lot of time talking to companies, talking to candidates about hiring. Given your perspective on the career path, career trajectory of different people. Do you have any pieces of advice or just general words of wisdom for career selection, career navigation? Nice. Yes. Yes, I do. I do. Uh, I, I would say first off to to all of the uh, all of your subscribers, your listeners, that that you are in an awesome situation. Your skill set is is hugely in demand. Uh, you need to recognize that and take the time to think about your career. If you're, if you're in a situation where you're not happy at work, then you need to take some action. Um, Jeff, I've heard you speaking on the podcast about your situation at, at Amazon a year ago. And, and I, I applaud you for getting to, to a point where, where you love what you do and it shows. And, and, and that's something, it's a lesson that, 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 that we should all learn. When people come to, to have a career chat with me, the first question I ask them is the same question that, that we ask on our platform, which is, tell me your, your happiness at work on a scale of, of one to 10. And if, if you're at a seven, I say, look, you should, you should talk to your boss, you should talk to the people around you, figure out what it would take to get to eight. And if you're under seven, I say, you know what, you need a new job. 
So we have seen the rise of machine learning tools like TensorFlow. Um, it's becoming more and more easier to do off-the-shelf machine learning without knowing, you know, without having a PhD in neural networks. What is this going to enable, this machine learning ease of use revolution? What is it going to enable in the realm of hiring? Yeah, so we feel very fortunate to be at this this pivotal moment in, in machine intelligence where these kinds of milestones are being reached every few months and where this kind of technology is so accessible, as you say. Um, and and yes, the, the area that's showing the most promise right now is, is deep learning uh, with the sort of astonishing advances in speech and image recognition that we're seeing and with uh, AlphaGo winning winning at Go uh, and, and uh, the, the continuing advances. So we're definitely researching to what extent we can apply this technology to the recruitment process. So we're looking to see if we can use these kinds of deep learning models as an ensemble with our existing models, um, particularly as they can work directly with unstructured data uh, bypassing the need for feature engineering because uh, the neural network has freedom to find its own features and ex uh, uh, abstractions, um, which can make it uh, a great complement to the kinds of statistical approaches that we use today. Some of the other things that we think would be really interesting is we could use deep learning to help you write your resume on the fly. So while you're writing a resume, perhaps a tool could be giving you suggestions or giving you immediate feedback about how compelling uh, your resume is looking. And then flip that around, we could use deep learning on the manager side to help the managers write job descriptions, which would be uh, written in a way that will resonate the most with engineers and will really tell the story best about what the role involves. Okay. Well, Ed, I want to respect your time. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. And thanks to thanks for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. For those who don't know, it's Ed Untapped was a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. And um, I think it's it's a it seems like an awesome platform to me. And I, I, I really uh, am looking forward to the scaling of the platform. And because I think any any platform that gives more visibility of the hiring process, more liquidity, um, will um, <clears throat> will end the artificial artificially low public ceiling on software engineer salaries that I have ranted about in other episodes, which which we can save for another time. But um, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Jeff. Great pleasure. Thanks to Symphono for sponsoring Software Engineering Daily. Symphono is a custom engineering shop where senior engineers tackle big tech challenges while learning from each other. Check it out at symphono.com slash sedaily. That's S-Y-M-P-H-O-N-O dot com slash sedaily. Thanks again, Symphono.